Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Do I need to check and make sure that that's on? Jared, is the mic on? Is that? Today's reading is from John chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. John chapter 8, 31 to 38. And so it reads, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you will seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have Sorry, and you do what you have heard from your father. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So it's been a few weeks since our last dive into the Gospel of John. So before we look carefully into today's text, let's do a little bit of review. In chapter 7, we began with Jesus attending the Feast of Booze, the largest and longest feast in the Jewish calendar. Jerusalem at this point is full of people. The celebration is a week-long festival. Jesus shows up late to the party, but once there, he makes his presence felt. He lectures and teaches, and while doing so, he ruffles a lot of feathers. Jesus challenges the scribes and Pharisees regarding such things as the Sabbath, and whether or not it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. People start to openly discuss whether or not Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The Sanhedrin, of course, doesn't like this. So they send officers to arrest Jesus, but they come back empty-handed. And they come back empty-handed because they say they are amazed at the teachings. Right? They are amazed at the teachings. Jesus then ramps up the rhetoric, so to speak, by proclaiming for himself titles which are reserved for God alone. He gives himself such titles as the river of living water. He claims to be the light of the world. This led to what may have been a rather heated exchange when of which the Pharisees had some questions for Jesus. We looked at those last time, but as a short review, what were they? Those questions were, where is your father? Where is he? This was, of course, a rhetorical question that was likely meant as a pejorative. It was meant as an insult, calling into question the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. Who was his dad? Of course, Jesus' response was accurate and likely what I would call a stinging retort. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father. The second question was, will he kill himself? 
This was in response to Jesus' claim that where he was going, they could not come. Where was it that Jesus could not go, but they could not? Their only guess was the pit of hell. After all, they were the religious elite. They were going to heaven, right? Hell was reserved for those who took their own life, and all things considered, the Pharisees were going to heaven, so therefore Jesus must be talking about hell, and he must be wanting to go kill himself. The problem, of course, was that, was that they had uh, the situation exactly backward. It was Jesus who would ascend to the right hand of the Father, while the Pharisees would not be. They would die in their sins, Jesus tells them. Finally, they ask the question, who are you? If you remember, Jesus' response was a very difficult passage, likely one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to translate and interpret on top of that. My best guess was that Jesus dodged the question and instead answers with something that connotes the idea of you ain't seen nothing yet. The results of this exchange was that many believed in him, verse 30. And this is where we pick up the text. All right? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is verses 31 to 32. These two verses are pregnant with insight and information that could quite easily be made a sermon all by themselves. I was, I was very tempted to do just that, and then I thought we need to get through the book of John eventually, and doing it two verses at a time probably isn't the wisest idea. So what I'm doing is I'm going to uh, skip through quickly six things, maybe seven, but six things for sure that I want you to notice. I want you to notice first the change of address, okay, the change of address. Jesus to this point had been teaching to the crowd, right, to the crowd, but he was predominantly interacting with who? With his critics. He was predominantly talking to and having arguments with the scribes and Pharisees. Right? At the end of verse 30, we're told that because of that interaction, many believed in him. So, what you may or may not notice is that we have no record here of anyone coming forward. There wasn't an altar call, right? Uh, there wasn't anyone yelling out their belief, hey, that's me you're talking about, right? Uh, no one rushing to prostrate themselves at Jesus' feet. All we have is a declaration from the Apostle John that many came to believe. And here we have Jesus who now addresses directly those who have believed in him. So what he's about to say is for those who have believed in him. Jesus knows that there are those that he has convinced of the truth. He is no longer talking with the unbelieving crowd or the scribes and Pharisees, but is now addressing those who believe. Second thing I want you to notice the condition. I want you to notice the condition. Jesus uses the simple term, if. If. Indicating 
What follows is conditional. I'll be coming back to this later on, but keep this condition in mind as we move forward. All right? It is a condition. Notice third, the action. Jesus uses the term abide here. We don't use that word much anymore, but the word itself can and has been used in very deep and meaningful ways. The term abide here has the understanding of remaining or enduring or to hold fast onto something. The term abide has been used in uh, even more understanding to contrast terms such as unstable, right, or corruption or transient, right? Fourth, fourth thing I want you to notice, the object. The object. What are we supposed to hold fast to? Jesus tells us, abide in my word. Abide in my word. I want you to see here the authority of this statement. The authority of this statement. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees were teachers and preachers of the law, but they did not speak with authority. They quoted scholars. They quoted rabbis. They had many words to repeat, but they did not speak with authority. What does it mean to speak with authority? How about, if you abide in my word, my word, right? Do you recall just a few verses earlier when the scribes and Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus and that they came back empty-handed? What was the reason? Guys, no one, no one has ever spoke like this man. No one. What was their answer? Have any of what? Have any of the authorities believed in this man? Humanity keeps falling into the trap of thinking that those in authority here on earth are the final authority. They are not, for there is one with authority over all people, and his name is Jesus. Right? His name is Jesus. Why is it that Jesus has the words of authority? Because he only says what is true. He only says what his Father in heaven has given him to say. Unlike the father of lies, namely Satan, God is the God of truth. God is truth. Here we have the Trinity in action. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in him, meaning Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ has authority because he is God incarnate in the flesh. So when he says, my word, he means my word. If you hear what I'm saying, if you hear what I'm saying and you believe what I'm saying and if you hold fast to what I'm saying, then what? Notice fifth. Result number one. Throwing lots of numbers at you. This is the fifth point. This is result number one. Right? If you hold fast, if you abide in my word, then 
you are my disciples. Not only my disciples, but you are truly, truly my disciples. This goes back to the condition of the if at the beginning. If, then, right? To the best of my knowledge, this leads me to believe that there are three kinds of people in this world. Three kinds. And there are those that are not disciples of Christ. They know that they are not disciples of Christ. They reject the claims of Christ. They reject Christianity. And they hold fast to or abide in other religions or other worldviews. Right? That's category number one. They make no claims to Christianity. There are those that say they are disciples of Christ, but are not. These could include obvious heretical groups, so I think this is number two, this is group number two. Uh, they are obvious heretical groups, such as the Mormons, otherwise known as what? The Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. They have a claim of Christ right in their name, yet they do not hold to Orthodox Christian teachings. They do not hold to the creeds. They do not hold to the confessions. We have the Jehovah's Witnesses who claim Christ is a lesser created God, small g, who is in fact the Archangel Michael. It's quite amazing how they've come to that conclusion, but they too do not hold to Orthodox Christian teaching. But the most terrifying to me is the third group. The third group are Christians who attend Orthodox churches and yet, nope, this is still group number two. My apologies. These are lumped in. These are lumped in with group number two. These are lumped in with the Mormons and the, and the JWs and whatnot, okay? These are the ones that terrify me the most and those who are those that attend Orthodox churches, not Eastern Orthodox. Orthodox, meaning those that hold to the creeds and confessions, right? And those are the ones that will hear... Jesus say on the last day, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Matthew 7. We don't have to look too hard or too far to see the apostasy of churches everywhere. Everywhere. It starts, in my mind, the apostasy starts in my mind with the rejection of clear scripture which teaches on the roles of men and women. That's always the first step. In my mind, it's always the first step from Orthodox Christian churches. They reject the roles of men and women. The minute a church concedes on this issue and allows for women pastors, they are starting down a slippery slope of postmodernism. They are going down a worldview that embraces the idea that there is no truth, that truth is whatever our feelings or our experiences tell us they are. We dismiss out of hand anything in the Bible, God's word, this book right here, that disagrees with or is at odds with our post-Christian, post-modern culture. Churches are compromising in droves, including our friends lately in the Church of England, our Southern Baptist friends, although there's some pushback there, God be praised, but Southern Baptists, I believe, are headed towards an ugly split. 
our Alliance friends have already cratered on this issue. And on and on. It's a serious, serious problem. In order to be a true disciple of Christ, you must abide in his word. And then there are those, so this is, this is number three, this is the third group, and then there are those that say they are disciples of, of Christ, and indeed they are. There's your third group. How is this possible? It is only possible because they abide in Jesus' word. They hold fast. They are not corrupted. They are not blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes through. They're not looking at the nations and saying, what's new in the nations? How do we appeal to the nations? We must appeal to the nations by becoming the nation. They don't do that. They hold fast. They hold fast. They abide in the word. More on that later. So sixth, if you're still keeping track, is result number two. And you will know the truth. The concept of truth is a fascinating one. The definition of and pursuit of truth, I believe, is a pillar of the story of God and the redemption of the world. In my ordination exam last week, I was asked the simple question, what is the Bible about? Amazingly to me, in 12 years of ministry, I have never been asked that question before. And so therefore, it probably should have been an easy one that you just hit out of the park. But I stumbled and stammered around going, wait a second, I've never been asked that before. What is the Bible about? My answer was that the, the Bible, from start to finish, is about God, then redemption. Seems, seems to be the broader picture. God and redemption, right? If I wanted to get cute, which I didn't want to, it was pretty stressful, thought I'd just better play it straight up, but if I wanted to be cute, I might have said that the Bible is the battle for truth. The Bible is the battle, not for truth, but of truth. You see, truth is objective. Truth does not depend on what you believe. Truth does not depend upon your experience. Truth does not depend upon your feelings. Truth is that which pertains to reality. That which is Real. It doesn't matter in the slightest to the objectivity of the truth as to whether or not you believe it. So such things as Jesus is Lord is true. Whether you believe it or not, Jesus is Lord. This is the word of God. You all have a copy of at least one of them. This is reality whether you believe it or not. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. Jesus is the truth, whether you believe it or not. And what is wonderful here is that Jesus tells all those who believe, you will know 
the truth. You will know the truth. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. Knowledge is something that we, as creatures of God, crave. It's amazing how many people clamor around the news at night. When I'm in the fire hall, if it's the morning, the news is on. If it's noon, the news is on. If it's the evening, the news is on. Why? Because we crave to know what's going on. Right? We want to know things. Yet, how rare it is that we stop and ask the very question, how do we know what we claim to know? I had epiphany of this about two years ago where I started going, wait a second. How do I know these things? How do I know what I know? The philosophical term for this is epistemology, the study of knowledge, how we know what we know. How do we know what we know? Did you know that there are those out there that claim that you can't know anything? They're out there, right? Does anyone see the problem with that statement? Anyone see the problem with the statement? You can't know anything? Obviously, it is a knowledge claim, thereby making it what we call a self-defeating statement. It's a self-defeating statement. Logic is not strong with these people. I could go on and on about this, but the point I want to make is that knowledge is, knowledge is attainable. Knowledge is unavoidable, and all knowledge is rooted in Christ. All knowledge is rooted in Christ. Paul, writing to the Colossians, says of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The point is that you cannot truly know anything apart from God. So if we back the truck up just a little, we can see the following. To not abide is to not be a true disciple of Christ. To not be a true disciple of Christ is to not know the truth. Belief in Christ is the beginning of knowledge. It is the beginning of understanding. Without Christ, you cannot have knowledge, and you will not have understanding. Now, before I go on, you might say, or you might be thinking to yourself, come on, pastor. That can't be true. I know lots of people that don't know Christ, and yet, yet they know lots of things, right? That is a good observation. My answer to that would be, yes, they do have some knowledge. They do have some understanding. But the issue is, is that they have no justification. They have no justification. They have no foundation on, on which to rest that knowledge apart from God in whom they reject. They've got both feet firmly planted in midair. No justification. Right? Therefore, having no foundation for that knowledge apart from their own experience, they show at least two things, if not more. But here's the two things I want you to see. First, when you press them, they will admit to not being able to know anything. Again, it's a self-defeating statement. Just keep asking them how they know what they know, and they'll eventually give up and go, I don't know. 
Right. Second, the problem is, is that they do know things. And how do they know things? Because they have been revealed by God to all creatures, thereby making them without excuse on the day of judgment. Right? They live and they move and they have their being resting upon the knowledge that God has provided them. All of us do that. All of us. Seventh, we have result number three. And the truth will set you free. And the truth will set you free. That sounds wonderful. The problem is, what are we free from? What are we free from? They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 33. The first question we need to solve is, who is the they that answered him? Was it those that believed? Or was it, once again, the scribes and Pharisees jumping back in? I think... Some might argue with this, but I think if we skip down to verses 37 and 38, we can see that Jesus answered them with, you, yet you seek to kill me, right? So I think it's safe to say that it's the scribes and Pharisees speaking here and raising the objection, not those who believed. However, this might even be more shocking, is that if it is referring to the people who allegedly believed, and at the end, they are the ones that Jesus says, yet you're trying to kill me. How quickly does one go from believing, or how quickly can one go from making an outward confession of believing to then wanting to kill the very Savior that they said believe? I seem to think, I, I go with the idea that is the scribes and Pharisees jumping back in. What was their argument? We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. The offspring or seed of Abraham has to do with their understanding of being in covenant with God. Right? They are the chosen people. The Jews are God's chosen people. And as such, they believe themselves to be sons of the kingdom. Right? Sons of the kingdom. So when they say, we have never been enslaved to anyone, they cannot be talking about physical realities. It's not possible. Why is it not possible? Because the Jews, the seed of Abraham, had been objectively, meaning you can't argue with it, they had been objectively enslaved numerous times. The Egyptians the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and even at this point, during this exchange, there were Roman legions stationed in Jerusalem, right? There, uh, they were in a Roman province called Palestine. By the way, Palestine was a name given to the region by the Romans. Palestine was never a country prior to the Romans, right? So their commitment had to do with a spiritual, or sorry, their commitment, their comment had to do with the spiritual reality. Unlike the pagan Roman legions or any who came before them, the seed of Abraham were the sons of the kingdom. They were God's people, and they were spiritually free from anyone or anything. 
At least, that's what they thought. It led them to the question, Jesus, what are you talking about? How can the sons of the kingdom, how can the sons of God Almighty be enslaved to anyone? How does one become free when we have never been enslaved? So Jesus gives them the answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Verse 34. Amen, amen. The expression that Jesus uses when he wants you to pay real close attention. What I'm about to say is kind of important. You want to know how you are a slave? Let me tell you. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The good news, as Jesus said, is Jesus has come to what? To set the captives free. Luke 4, 18, 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was a reference to Isaiah 61 and verse 1, written 700 years prior to Jesus' coming, that said, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, to, uh, and the freedom of the prisoners. Jesus has come to tell the Jews that they are captives. Jesus has come to tell the Jewish nation, you are captives. You are covenant lawbreakers. That true freedom is found in God and God alone through faith in Jesus Christ. They are held captive by sin. And because they are held captive by sin, even though they are sons of the kingdom, Jesus informs them that the sons of the kingdom will be what? That they will be cast into the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, verse 12. Their entitled positions, and they were, their entitled positions will not help them on the day of judgment. Only those born from above, those that were born again, those that are true believers, those that hold fast to the word, that abide in the word, are free from sin. Does this mean true believers never sin? No, it means we aren't held captive by sin. It means that we have new hearts. It means that we have new desires. We love God's law, and out of obedience and love for God, we follow God's law, knowing we do not do so fully, knowing that we fail. The good news, though, is that we are no longer slaves to our sin. We are no longer under the curse of sin. Sin 
is a liar. Sin is a liar. Sin promises what it cannot deliver. Apart from Christ, even our good works are stained with sin. Jesus continues, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Jesus is making a contrast between himself, the son who remains forever, and the slaves, the unbelieving Jews. The Jews believe themselves to be heirs of the kingdom. However, Jesus is informing them that they are no better than slaves in the household of God because of their unbelief and because of their covenant breaking. They will not remain in the house of the Lord. For slaves have no share in the inheritance of the master. Slaves have no inheritance. Right? You must be part of the family in order to receive the inheritance. Those who proclaim that Christians should follow Jesus' example and be nice should take some time to read Jesus' more tough sayings. This is one of them. Could you imagine what the look on the Pharisee's face had to be when Jesus said that? Jesus is speaking truth. I would like to say that Jesus is speaking truth in love. Yet, how do you think the scribes and Pharisees are taking it? Sometimes truth and love is hard to hear. Jesus continues, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 36. Who can free someone from sin? Don't worry, that is a Sunday school answer. It's very simple. If you said Jesus, if you said God, good job, right? Yes. Who can forgive sin? Your answer is only God can do that, right? Christ not only speaks with authority, he also acts with authority. The Jews are more than aware that what Jesus claims for himself is under the prerogative, pejorative, prerogative. That's the right word. He's under the prerogative of God and God alone. What is Christ's claim? His claim is he is God. He is the son of God. He is equal with God. What God commands happens. God said, let there be light, and guess what? There was light. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and what happened? The waters obeyed. The water obeyed. God said, let the water gather and let dry land appear, and guess what? It happened. Jesus commanded the wind and the waves to calm down. And what happened? They did. They calmed down. What sort of man commands the elements and the elements obey him? Who does that? So if the Son sets you free from sin, you will be free 
from sin. The same Jesus that commanded the waters and the wind to calm also says, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Guess what? You're free. You're free. You will no longer be a slave to your sinful lusts and passions, but you will have desires to obey. Even in times of difficulty, even in times of distress, your heart will want to obey. You might struggle from time to time, but the struggle is there because you want to obey. You may fall, but you will never completely fall. Why? Because the Son has set you free. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Verse 37. Jesus acknowledges at this point that they are right. They're right. They are indeed the offspring of Abraham. They are the people of the covenant. They are the people that were given the oracles of God. They are the people in whom salvation was to be found through. They were to be a light to the world. They were all those things. They were. And yet, oftentimes in, in scripture when we see the Greek word Allah, A-L-L-A, Allah, that word means but or yet, it's usually followed with the word God, and it connotes a good thing. The situation is usually, usually something along the lines of, here's the bad news, right? Here's the bad news. The people have sinned again. It's usually the bad news, right? Then we have the word Allah, and then we have the good news. But God, or yet God. Right? God comes in with his grace and his mercy and he restores things back to the good. Yay, God. Right? However, in this case, we have the exact opposite. Jesus is pointing out to the Jews that yes, you are indeed the sons, the seed of Abraham. That's the good news. Allah, yet but, here's the bad news. Even though you have been given blessing upon blessing, you still rebel. Grace upon grace, yet you still rebel. You still sin. You still hate me. You still hate me. In fact, Jesus says, you want to kill me. And you want to kill me because, why? Because my words finds no place in you. Do you see the difference from verse 31? Do you see the difference there? It started with an action of believers. It was the believers that are abiding in the word. Now it's pointed out that the word is the one in action. The word is the one in action and it finds no place in them. It finds no place in them. Like the seed thrown on a hard path, the parable of the seeds, the seed thrown on the hard path was what? It was devoured quickly. 
The birds came and took it. Devoured quickly. It had no chance. It was rejected. They hated Christ because the word found no home in them. Jesus goes on to say, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Verse 38. So Jesus picks a fight. He says some hard things. And then, verse 38, he gives them a gut punch. And unfortunately, you're going to have to wait till next week because the next section of scripture deals with the gut punch. But what I will say for now is that we need to acknowledge that the Jews believe themselves to be heirs of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom, but Jesus is the bearer of bad news. Jesus is the true heir. They are but slaves, slaves to their sin. And as slaves to their sin, they reveal who their true father is, and guess what? It's not God. So in conclusion today, there's two applications that I'd like you to take away. The first is from verses 31 and 32. I think 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 sums it up nicely. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? There's often a clash of theology at this point, and it basically has to do with the assurance of salvation. The argument goes something like this. If God has chosen his elect, and the elect cannot fall away, by the way, that's something we hear at Covenant Presbyterian belief, as spelled out in scripture in the Westminster Confession, then why are there warnings in scripture like 2 Corinthians 13.5? What's the point of the warnings? Why are there conditions on salvation like there seems to be here in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32? The answer is simple. When we are talking about assurance of salvation, when we see in Scripture that the Father has given Jesus the elect and he shall lose none of them, zero, none of them, we are speaking from what is seen in the heavenly realm. This is true in the heavenly realm. But what do we see here on earth? What do we see here? In the physical realm, we see a fallen world. We see a fallen world, we see a fallen humanity, we see, even in ourselves, the falling short of the glory of God. We see in scripture the foolishness of man, including those that proclaim faith in Christ and yet fall away. We read from John's first, first epistle, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Those that went out, by definition, did not abide. They did not abide, thereby proving that they were not 
a true disciple of Christ, but rather they were a false convert. They were a false convert. They fit the second category that I gave, right? Persons who believed themselves to be disciples, but then proved otherwise. Just like the Old Testament saints, the covenant had those that were true believers and those that were false. They were the wicked servants. They were the branches that bared no fruit and then were cut off and thrown into the fire. There were many that thought because they were of the lineage of Abraham, because they were circumcised and were members of the covenant, they were saved. They were sons of Abraham. They were wrong. They were wrong. Jesus warns that this same rule applies to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being grafted into the vine. But if we show ourselves to lack fruit, what was promised? We too will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Just because you attend church, just because you have been baptized, just because you are the sons or daughters of believing parents and thereby members of the covenant, and you are, does not mean that you do not need to heed the warning. You must abide in Christ through his word. You must. If you abide, you will prove to be his true disciple and not a false one. Examine yourself. By the way, that doesn't mean examine yourself 24-7, right? Our hope is looking outward, not inward. However, we do need to stop from time to time and check ourselves. Are we abiding in him and in his word? Secondly, I want you to read from Romans 6.16. Do you not know that when you offer yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin leading to death or to obedience leading to righteousness? And from 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19, they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. The accusation Jesus levied against the Jews was that even though they were sons of Abraham, even though that they had the oracles of God, they proved themselves to be sons of the evil one. They proved themselves to be sons of the devil. As I will cover more next week, our lineage depends, I have to say this carefully, our lineage depends upon our obedience. Do we obey Christ? Or do we obey sin? Do we find our solace in Christ and his body, meaning the church? Or do we find solace in the things of this world? 
Where do we turn in our afflictions? Do we turn to Christ? Or do we turn to something else? Or someone else? I think of Bob Dylan, who sang it well when he sang, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Indeed. The question I have for you and for me today is, whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? We're all a slave to somebody. Are you a slave of Christ? Or are you a slave of the devil? Let the hearer understand. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for your spirit, and I thank you for your saving grace. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to a true knowledge of our sonship of you, that we are all sons and daughters here in this place of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us <clears throat> the willingness and courage to examine ourselves from time to time to make sure that we are abiding in you. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would grant this to us, your people. Amen.